Having a Gas is the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries, and in particular finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for dancing to, for cooking to, for f***ing to, and more. Today, I'm having a gas with Simon Hewitt, the MD of Orange Panther Collective, a new startup that was spotlit in Campaign Live as one to watch. Simon brings with him an impressive amount of experience handling accounts for major agencies, so I wanted to data mine him for as much advice as I could get. I guess we'll start by saying, first of all, uh, Simon, um, how has the first two months of 2021 been for you? Um, hi, mate. Yeah, uh, thank you for the little intro. Um, yeah, the start of this year, the start of this year has been quite been busy, um, which is really good. I mean, we are, the OPC is uh, now what we were conceived, how we say we were conceived in pre-lockdown in February, January, February last year, uh, and born in May of last year. So between conception and birth, we, I mean, went into the biggest global pandemic uh, since the Spanish flu, I think it is, and certainly the biggest sort of crisis in the UK since World War II. So that meant it got a little bit complicated between uh, conception and birth. But actually, I'm going to say that it didn't. We didn't. We didn't really change anything. We we the only thing we did was changed our narrative. I think of who we are a little, because ultimately we were we were set up to be um, a remote working, integrated, fully integrated creative agency. So taking all our backgrounds from uh, the world of, you know, my background is MSC Saatchi into AMV, into Red B, which is basically BBC Creative now, and then into Leo Burnett, oh, and then into Engine uh, or Trailer Park, and then became sort of part of the big engine mothership. Um, taking all that all that background and basically everything I've done before, but say small little, and like we talk about a little orange speedboat rather than potentially the oil tankers, which we left we left behind, but that's, we might flog that one a little bit too much, but it helps for some conversation starters. Um, anyway, so yeah, we were definitely set up to be this integrated uh, agency doing everything we'd done before, but remotely without all the overheads and that big story about how we can be much more cost effective and you only have who you need in the room and we're much tighter, sharper little unit. Um, and then uh, because of lockdown, that cell, that narrative was fine, but we were basically, everybody was working remotely and everybody was, you know, doing things a little bit differently, um, well, very differently. So the big sale of like us just being an integrated remote agency living on Zoom uh, and only one or two or three was suddenly, no, everyone's doing that, the whole world is doing that. So that kind of killed that narrative a bit. But actually, the great thing that came out of it and the great thing that we got excited about was um, the flip to it and a real silver lining, I suppose, and it's, I hate saying that around something so horrible as, as COVID, but from a commercial and business opportunity silver lining meant that every single prospective client operated in a world where in our world right so everybody kind of like was like totally fine with it they didn't need to be in offices they didn't need to do the whites of the eyes in that respect and my god i'm a fan of whites of the eyes i'm a you know a, an account man for 20 years whites of the eyes is important but you know the the, the the remote world suddenly was validated by every client around the world and suddenly to kind of like Easier to get business, actually, ultimately. But um, that is a long-winded way of saying if that was our setup and that's who we are and that's who we set out to be, as we've moved from May to into this year, May of last year into this year, we've grown pretty quickly and we've, it's quite a healthy environment for us. And we hit the ground finishing off, uh, hit the ground running in January, finishing off project for the Financial Times. So working with like big traditional brands there. Um, but really kind of like we're now working on four projects in the sort of scale-up community, which is where our core focus is. And, you know, uh, uh, busy, a lot of, especially D2C scale-ups, like D2C brands, you know, they are busy, busy, busy during these times. Like, you know, COVID has given them way more opportunities than potentially they had before. And um, we are trying to sort of work with that and open that up. So that's an incredibly long-winded response to your question, which should have, could have been, yeah, busy January and February. <laughs> but no, it gave us everything we need to go on with because, you know, there are two or three uh, major interesting ideas there. And let's start with the first one, which is at the outset, I didn't even know this and we already know you. I didn't even know that your initial proposition was to be a novel remote agency. And then suddenly the events transpired to make it so that 
everyone was in the same position as you. So do you anticipate that if the pandemic hadn't happened, you would have had to invest much more energy into just selling the concept across that you can work remotely? Yeah, I think, and again, who knows, right? Because the, the journey we've gone on is the journey we've gone on and, and you know, all the influences that have been formed that have done just that. And so we've we changed, well, yeah, so I say keep saying we changed shape, but um, uh, yeah, I believe that we probably would have gone harder on the, we are unique because of our business model and because of our construct rather than because of who we want to talk to. So rather than like, we're now positioning ourselves based on our audience rather than based on what we do, uh, our model, basically. And so, yeah, I think we probably would have gone more. And like, we can do everything those guys do, but we are, we're just smaller. We're like, you know, big agency thinking, little agency attitude was one of our kind of like first posts. And, and that would be something which we would have kind of hold on, held on to. Yeah. Uh, and, and obviously, and I think also, uh, and brackets and little agency costs, you know. So basically, we can effectively go to, you know, we are having conversations with some of my old, our clients who are big global brands and you know that's a narrative to a degree that we have with them is you can have everything you had before but with a more a smaller more attentive more uh cost effective um and actually more specialist team because we'll bring in exactly who you need you know you don't sometimes you know you're sat in a room in my previous life with 10 people in a room three or four which you probably don't need yeah they're there because you know they are you know the the, the CSD wants to make sure that the account director does the like leading and then the account director wants to make sure the account manager gets like an opportunity. And my God, that's so important for people to learn. And I don't think you, I think you've got to find better ways of getting people to learn. The point is you can definitely have a load of people in the room who aren't there and also maybe just don't know how to answer certain challenges. Whereas we're like, no, you only you need and they will all have a very, very specific responsibility to work with you and grow your business. Um, but yeah, I think we we definitely realised as the world joined us in this remote working um, uh, Zoom, as we talked about at the beginning, you know, Zoom landscape. We um, we realised that wasn't enough, so we definitely kind of like took some time to really focus on our strengths and also our passions, and the two together kind of led us into this world of we think. Um, you know, working with startups and scale ups, we've got real passion for working with startups but we're smart enough to know that scale-ups have money and startups often don't have money. So there's definitely differentiation and, and, and we've got loads of differentiating factors, you know, looking at people who are at seed stage versus, you know, early stage growth versus late stage growth, you know, whether they are pre-any funding versus series A, B, C, D, E funding, you know, and there's loads of different now types of client that we know within the world of scale-ups. Um, but we, what we knew is we've got, we, we, we were passionate about helping new brands and what we knew is we needed to go with the guys who got a bit of money. And we put those two things together. And we also know that our, particularly from a strategic perspective, our Lorna, our strategy partner, she spent a lot of time in an innovation agency after Leah Burnett and Creature of London. She then went to an innovation agency called Bow Arrow. And that understanding of the business, the business acumen, the world, the way in which a lot of new businesses are working, because obviously they're very innovative, um, that expertise has really kind of helped us feel like we know our shit. So passion and expertise together, it works. It makes sense. And it's working really well. Everyone's like, oh, this is great. It's brilliant. And, and funny enough as well, we're also working a lot of food and beverage brands in the startup scale-up world. Um, and that I think is probably because it's a passion point for us. Mm. Uh, you know, we are foodies. Lauren and I met working on McDonald's, which I know if you're a foodie, you can't associate the two but you know it's an amazing brand um and i think we're comfortable in that world i also used to work on guinness i worked on sainsbury's um you know so things where we understand that world very well so it's also interesting how you end up gravitating to that we definitely don't want to be stuck in a we just do food and bevs because yeah we don't we're working with office space brands uh, bike subscription brands um like very varied businesses and the ft as they say for example yeah so I've got, there's, there's loads I want to ask you. I'd be remiss as a podcast host if I didn't point out that we're having occasional uh, dips in audio quality and, and breaking up some sentences. Uh, is, is, there, is there anything you can do to strengthen your internet connection? Is there any way you can move? Or if not, I'm not. Uh, it, it's, it's sufficient. I was just seeing if there's anything. That's good. Is it, is it audio or is it the whole thing getting a bit sticky? Audio. Just audio? Yeah. 
<clears throat> I can talk a little. Uh, I can talk a little deeper. No, I can. I'll come a little closer as well. I mean, the audio should be pretty good on this. Normally, I'm told to speak less rather than speak louder. Oh, it's good, but it's just occasional connection issues. You know, there's a bit of jerk in uh, okay. going on. So, but if it's again, if it's a, a temporary issue, uh, well, I'll, I'll, if, it, if it happens again, I'll flag it up. But um, posted. I'll, I'll try and keep it posted if it does happen again. I can move closer to it around, so it should work fine. But cool. All right. Um, so the thing, like, well, what, what we often do is we start from the beginning. So to know why we are where we are, we've already been through the fact that you've got a wealth of agency experience, big agency experience. So uh, first of all, what brought you in and what took you on your journey? You know, Why did you make the decisions you made about who you worked for and what you wanted to do? Um, so, I mean, I suppose within that, what's the... Who we want to work for and what we want to do. I mean, we starting at the beginning. The, well, so the reason why OPC exists, um, and I would always quite Simon. I'll clarify. You as an individual, uh, when you started your career, why did you get into it, and, and what drove you through the agencies that you went through before OPC? Okay, okay. Um, I got into advertising. So my first gig was at was job was at uh, MSC Saatchi. So got in through. Was applying for the grad scheme and then um, was offered a job partway through. Also, yeah, partway through. I think I got into like a third or fourth round interview, and then um, and then a job came up, and I took that. I jumped obviously with two feet into that, and I got to do sort of part of the grad scheme while I was working on. Uh, it was the good old Dixon Stores Group, so it was the you know the big sort of a lot of it was moving fridges and freezers around a DPS in the middle of the sun. You know, that's kind of like where we started, and I think from a Someone who's very creatively motivated, which is why I wanted to get into the industry. I wanted to be a creative. I think I've always, I'm definitely put myself down as a frustrated creative. I don't, I didn't, uh, I didn't do art at university. I didn't do any art. I didn't do any particularly creatively focused degree. Um, and so I didn't really know kind of how to get into it from a really proper purist creative perspective. Did a couple of DNAD um, courses and learned a few things, but ultimately I thought I'll just do the account man bit while I'm, you know, trying to work out how I can flip over to being a creative. Yeah. And then of course, 20 years later, here we are. Um, so I suppose, yeah, creative aspirations got me into advertising. Um, but then I it went to MNC learn a hell of a lot from the account man perspective at MNC working on, on something that is like re, very like basically purely retail and, uh, but didn't learn much from a creative perspective. So I then shifted, uh, from there I went to work at AMV on Sainsbury's. Um, so again, I was working retail, but a much more creative retail business. Um, and that enabled me to kind of make that step closer. And then when at AMV, I then shifted to work on Guinness, uh, Chrysler, Jeep, Jeep and Chrysler, remember those days, hmm. um, and uh, Aviva. But point was, I kind of like, once it's on Guinness, then you sort of really realise you're getting much nearer the the heartland of creativity within the industry. You know, I got to work on the very end of the Know It You Love campaign, which was the Mudskipper ad. Yeah. Go, they mud, yeah, go back in time from guys at the bar to Mudskippers um, drinking out of the pot of the puddle. Uh, and then did some like other really fun work on Guinness. And then I... Red B came a knocking and I got very excited about the prospect of working on BBC Sport and BBC One. Um, and I'm a big football fan and most sport actually, but particularly football. And I got to uh, work on like, you know, five years of FA Cup marketing and uh, Six Nations uh, and a lot of the golf and this. And it's it sort of, that was kind of re really good fun. And, and BBC Creative is very different, you know, very different world. There's a lot, I think there's a lot as, a, as an account man, you're much closer to the creative work there. It's far less traditional. Um, this is just, you make so much work. Budgets are massive, but with the BBC, often they don't need to be because things like, you don't have to pay for a lot of like yeah. usage. Um, and I loved it. I did six years there. Found it very hard to leave. But then I definitely got to a point where I felt I was stagnating a little and I, and I missed some of the more cutthroat advertising world. Um, so then I went to Leo's to work on McDonald's, which I loved. Five years there, amazing client, one of the best client relationships ever had. Lovely people, a lot of really good work, really strong relationship based on trust. So not much testing, not much pre-testing, which in most brands, you know, obsessively would be in, be hearing all the stories of sort of, you know, not to slight anybody, but 
you know, Kellogg's, for example, would, you know, and a lot of pre-testing would be going on with them or some of the other brands. And it was a lot of the P&G stuff, again, lots of pre-testing. Um, but we didn't on Maccas and that was based on just a really good relationship and a lot of data. There was a lot of data that sort of supported the fact that work was performing, but I like to think it was based on relationships, of course it would, because I was semi-in charge of those relationships. Yeah. Anyway, then I... Um, uh, and this, I don't know if I could make this any shorter, I probably could try. But then I uh, went to work at Trailer Park because having done five years at Leo's, my concern was I was, I was just very traditional. Yeah. Even though it was fully integrated work, it was uh, still a lot of, you know, and the age-old thing about just spending too much time and effort on the big dad, um, or, you know, which is just incredibly old school now and was pretty old school then four or five years ago. Um, although, you know, often most of the conversations you were having with uh, when you went to present the work, uh, the, you know, the clients in the room would be like, okay, love the thinking, but what's the telly look like? So you're slightly damned if you do, damned if you don't on that, on that side of things. So just as, as someone who's, who's relatively new to the industry, like myself, what, um, what's the, what's the meta story there? You're saying that there's a, uh, a tendency towards like orthodoxy and doing things in a very traditional way that blinds you to what certain types of thinking? I think there is a, a, a historically, and again, I think it's definitely changed, but back then, so this was in sort of 2016, let's say 15, 16, there was a need to shift thinking into fully holistic 360 ideas that were channel agnostic. And that was... So it can go on TV and it can go on Instagram. The idea can run anywhere and everywhere. Whatever channels are relevant to tell the to communicate what you want to communicate, um, you know. And again, there's a conversation about what comes first, the idea or the media plan, kind of thing. But you know, let's let's assume that you know you're starting with just an idea, and you need to communicate it to whatever the the relevant audience, and you you know that it needs to play out in different channels. You've probably got a young youth audience as part of it, and within that, you know, you definitely need to go big on the digital side of things um, rather than just traditional sort of TV. but And so McDonald's, which talks to everybody, literally, their target audience is everyone. Um, you know, you need to make sure that ideas played in loads of different channels and really, was really relevant and uh, authentically conveyed in social media just as much as it is in a big TV ad, just as much as it is in lovely app home, just as much as it is in anything, in any touch point, right? But the, the problem was, we would still then, this is back in again 2015, is like think about what the TV ad's going to be and then try and translate it into other channels. Uh, and that is just not the right way of doing it. You need to think about the idea and start with it at the core and then explode it out and look at it, how, look how you can tell the story in different channels right. uh, rather than what's the telly ad look like and then everything sits underneath it. So we were, that was a challenge. That was a tug of war. And lots of creators would still write a big TV ad and they go, yeah, but this tells us what it looks like and then we can kind of like go from there. And the problem was the fuel to that fire and the hardest thing was that when you, as I say, when you went to present work, 90% of the time, all that anyone in the room really cared about was what was my, you know, three or 400 grand TV ad going to look like because there's so much, the production costs are so high behind that, all the attention and effort was on that. So whilst we were absolutely trying to be channel agnostic with presenting work, no one really cared until they saw the TV ad. So inevitably you ended up worrying about the TV ad first, which then fuels the, problem that the agency had internally of always thinking about the TV ad first. So that became this like vicious circle, but that's definitely been broken down now and clients see very differently and it's just very different. And also, I mean, now in my world, we don't, you know, there's no TV, it's all AV. And when it's AV, it's sort of content and it's that content play out in a 30 to 60, 90 second spot that will run on some form of TV, yeah. probably uh, an SVOD platform. Um, or an OTT, depending, give it a name, but kind of an OTT platform, uh, or whether it will run, yeah, you know, pre-roll or whatever it will do, or whether you'll create longer form content that just sits behind a content strategy that can do bigger storytelling. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'm sort of slightly, slightly going off track, but to answer your question, that was the challenge then. That's now totally different. But um, I, but yeah, so that does, I guess, segue into my journey, back into my journey. So I left. Leo's to go to Trailer Park, which is a very famous trailer production company in LA. Yes. With pretty much all the big or half the big movie trailers. Uh, they're on Hollywood Boulevard, they've got this big building. They're very, very famous over there. And they 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 surfaced in the UK um, as part of the engine family. 
Uh, and I came in to kind of head up the client services, you know, account management team. And basically I wanted to do it because I felt if I got into much purer content, I was no longer in traditional advertising. And again, for everything I've just said, it felt like it was a smart move to break out of that slightly yes. tedious, like, yeah, still the big TV ad. Let, no, let's go and look at content and content, short, medium, long form content, digital first content, you know, and so I jumped and I went and ran Red Bull and the Olympic Committee with my main two pieces of business. And so, you know, working with Red Bull on content is like a dream. Yeah. Um, but the interesting thing is you are actually creating content about content. But I think a bit like Inception, you know, you yeah. try to work out how, how deep you've gone into the dream state. But um, we were, yeah, we were creating promotional content to promote existing content about all the amazing sports that they do. So from cliff diving to um, various different two wheel, four wheel motocross, uh, motorsport to skiing to snow and snowboarding, to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that, but that was really interesting. And I, and I definitely experienced a, a, a very important journey, which was um, they, when I started, it was brand first, um, audience second. Uh, and then they realized, you know, we helped them go on the journey of, you know, really needs to be audience first. You need to understand where your audience is, what they want, where your audience is, what, what would engage them, what's missing in their lives, what, whatever you can do to basically get a microcosm of their um, attention, but you know, in the platforms they're in. So create content to live on the platforms they're in and don't try and rip them out of those platforms and come to you because you're so amazing, brilliant, and use your app or whatever. So that was definitely an experience, you know, a learning experience. And then last year, I'd done three years, which I think is always sort of the magic minimum magic number for me somewhere. And also trailer park had gone and it engine had become one engine and it was engine film or engine content. And, and I think engine didn't really know what to do with it. Hmm. Um, plus Red Bull were taking more stuff in house and the IOC were, were taking more stuff. Well, just being a bit more unclear as to what they wanted. So I, with that in mind and the aspirations to do my own thing, um, jumped into OPC and yeah. And as I say, I left in February last year um, and we came to life in May. Wow. I mean, that is quite a story uh, all told. And especially getting embroiled in the, uh, what would you call it? The, the you were like a foot soldier in the, the raging debate between broadcast and narrowcast. You know, the one that uh, Hegarty weighed in on uh, not long ago. And um, let, here's, here's a question. So um, it sounds like uh, yes, you were saying the the issue is we need channel agnostic content. We need to make sure that whatever the idea is, it can play everywhere. Um, which uh, to an idiot like me says uh, that, well, especially the issue is McDonald's want to appeal to everyone and everyone watches on every channel. Whereas some demographics use TV more, some demographics use digital more. So obviously McDonald's problem was unique in that they're trying to get to everyone so they have to go down every channel. But uh, a question is from, I mean, and I suppose it's only the general public can ask this. Um, have there been any famous campaigns like Surfer or like Cadbury's Gorilla in the last six years? Yeah, it's an interesting, and I know a lot of those are quite a hot topic of sort of we were so we were talking very recently about what you know what makes good work now and craft is something that for me is I mean it's so important to have great craft in work and great storytelling and the stuff that makes you remember it right the stuff that really you know craft and this is cut through in just by being loud and then there's cut through in just being really amazing yeah. Um, I was watching a series the other day, um, and I, my pronunciation is probably terrible, but it's a BBC, it's on Netflix now, but BBC um, uh, Worldwide, I think it was commissioned by, it was called uh, Guji Haji, which, and so it's basically about this Japanese, um, it's about the uh, Yakuza, a Yakuza sort of war that's raging between Japan and London, I guess, ultimately. Um, and anyway, it's just, it's a great, I think it's great. It's quite understated. It's well done. And then in the final episode, there is just, and out of nowhere, there's this amazing dance sequence. And there's not been anything like in the film. The rest of the film's been about shooting, stabbing, and, you know, slow burn, but it's lots of really interesting relationships. And then there's this dance, contemporary dance scene, right in the middle of, like, basically a gun battle. And I just stopped in my tracks and went, 
oh, I just, you want to sit in it for a while. And that craft and that uniqueness, can I give you goosebumps now? It's just like, I need to tell the world about this. This is like one of the best things I've ever seen, just these three minutes. And that reminded me like the importance of craft and the importance of craft and, and a little bit of, you know, obviously a little bit of um, the creative magic that un- makes it unorthodox and unusual. Um, but, but then this conversation, that's really important and that plays to those big film, big um, ads you talked about, you know, that were pre six or seven years ago. But is, is the new good, is the new great work actually about relevance and and maybe what sits underneath it is speed and agility to, to create really relevant work because obviously relevance is very short term, right? Yeah. We moved on to the next thing. Um, and so, you know, what's the great start? And some of the ads that seem to have really landed and, and made a lot of noise. So, uh, you know, Nike's Londoner, um, you know, it's an example. It feels like it's been one of the most remembered ads for a while. Um, and that is potentially more because of the relevance for the audience and the relevance for the time than it is about craft. I mean, there is great craft in there as well, but the craft comes about in a much more like madcap or much more, um, I don't even know what the word is, but contemporary iteration of craft, you know, much more like cut, cutty and edgy rather than beautiful and slow and big and build. Um, so I wonder about that. And then also the, um, the recent uh, brilliant body form work uh, from AMV. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, that's long, that's really long form. So actually that's probably the antithesis of what I just said. That's long form, beautifully crafted, beautifully crafted storytelling, but it's not an ad. You know, it cut down 60 seconds. It doesn't do anything for you really. Do it in three minutes or whatever. I think the long form, which I watch is you're like, you know, my wife was crying and I was just totally blown away, but that's, that's not that's not that's not the surfer ad anymore. So I don't know. I sort of jumped around a bit, but I'm I'm really interested on the probably the first of those two points about the new good is about relevance and whatever that might mean, rather than about beautiful slow burn granular craft. Yeah. Even though as a human being, I love I just love craft. I love like. Um, punch drunk productions and those amazing immersive theater where you go to the 58th room you've been in and right in the very corner of that room where they could have given up they've still stenciled something really small on the wall that's the madman talking and you're like that is amazing that that level of detail anyway. yeah people are obsessed over that level of detail that tends to be where the brilliance comes in uh leave no stone unturned and it's interesting as you were um this, as you were talking about that i got to thinking that the kind of things that come into my periphery as, 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 as famous brands used to is a successful series on Netflix, The Crown, uh, uh, Queen's Gambit, uh, mm-hmm. or, or even not Netflix, Game of Thrones, things like this. So I don't really have a, a clever question formulated about this, but it's something about the fact that there is one media channel. That's just a channel and that's just Netflix. And of course, I don't know if I am not up to date on my knowledge here, but as far as I'm aware, Netflix is completely... Uh, absent of advertising. It's just a stark paywall. But yet they command uh, public discussion in a way that advertising agencies used to. Um, so I think that's just something worth bearing in mind. And it's interesting. It's like that effect is still created. That I still hear of things that aren't in my periphery because they become famous. But just on that single super successful media channel. But I don't know how to fashion that into a question, really. <laughs> well, I think, the, I mean, I... I, I... I, I mean, the Netflix effect, and I don't know is, is the question or the point, but I mean, it is amazing. I, I, yeah. I love the, I kind of can't remember the stat, but the Queen's Gambit, you know, sales in chessboards went up 280% or something like that on the back of that. You know, I, I dusted off my chessboard. And shamelessly, I've got a chessboard on the side in my living room and now, and it kind of looks cool now, whereas like, you know, six months ago, I didn't, although the chess boxing thing that was around five years ago made chess kind of cool again. But yeah, um, yeah I... Yeah, I the power of that, and I think uh, Red Bull. So Red Bull did some really good work with uh, what's the series? One of the the series about um, or was it not in Red Bull? But the the Formula One getting under the skin of the F one world, and you know, brands exposure within those stories is still definitely something that can be done and navigated um, or managed really well. So obviously, you know, authentically putting brands in content that's genuinely really interesting to people 
yeah. is the best way of you getting something out of Netflix. But yeah. it's hard to do and it can only be done in certain ways. And I don't know what sponsored, you know, I don't, you know, you don't see a particular chess brand coming up in uh, Queen's County. That's product placement, isn't it? Rather than using media channel, yeah. Do you think Netflix will yeah. ever have like a, a, you know, premium free advertising model or? I hope not. Yeah, you, you like it as it is. Yeah, I just think one of the merits, one of the reasons people love it is for that and they, they're willing to pay. And, you know, it still is a very small amount of money, really. But to get to just a load of really good content without any disruption. And obviously, as a man who's worked in advertising for 20 years, I hate the fact that people hate advertising. But I sometimes hate advertising if I'm not in the right, you know, if I don't want to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I sometimes think, uh, so we've got this insanely targeted um, media channels now. And so if I'm on YouTube and I look at a tutorial for, let's say, to do something on Premiere Pro, for the next week I get spammed with... Uh, are you a content marketer? Are you making video? And then really ham-handed stuff like, this person made $2,500 last week and you could too. And I've been wondering, and maybe you can uh, answer this, why don't we do broadcast on digital channels? Why doesn't everyone get the same adverts? I know that will be a stupid question, but there's, there's got to be a good reason, right? Well, I suppose, I mean, yeah, the hyper-targeted nature of digital channels and the ability, yeah, the ability just to basically build an audience set and and smash them on the head with very very specific messaging that you believe is going to take them down the funnel from you know so obviously you're starting at awareness through to consideration and down to conversion um i think you yeah i mean i i, I it's smart it's obviously smart and it's just totally logical to to make sure you are talking to the right people with the right messaging at the right time and that is that's how that works and that's it is smart. It's just what I do think is that a lot of brands are very lazy in the messaging that plays to those three different points of the funnel. You know, it still make every every experience, every opportunity, every moment, wherever you are, and however small a moment it is, or however big a broadcast moment it is, make all of it matter and feel interesting and relevant rather than um, be lazy with it. And, you know, I know everyone's like, you know, Again, it's just trying to make it work commercially, but it doesn't. I don't think it's very hard to make half decent, really, you know, granular bits of creative or bits of messaging for for people, and also they, you know, respect your audience as well. Yeah, you know, not people are going to are going to go. Oh, I can make two hundred fifty quid a month on doing this. I don't know. Maybe maybe they are, but I just think respect your audience a bit I mean, more. I mean, don't talk down to people; they're not stupid. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah, and everyone has a point of view, and. It can turn very quickly into a negative thing if you have talked down to them and so on. And, you know, the opportunity for you're trying to capture that microcosm of attention and make them like you rather than make them think you're, yeah, the opposite. Yeah, I I, um, I also noticed that I don't know one person who looks favorably upon their YouTube pre-rolls. I think they're all skipped. I think they're all annoying. And also, they're quite, in my case, they're quite poorly targeted because they always assume I don't know anything about music theory and need like chord packs selling to me and stuff like that. So, but that's just me venting a bit of personal. No, but that's, that's fair enough. But like, you know, in the awareness part, the top of the funnel, of course, you go a bit broader and a bit more, Yeah, you have to assume a little bit less knowledge. But if you've been really targeted, then you don't, you shouldn't assume too little knowledge because you're right. Otherwise, it's granny sucking eggs and straight away you're like, well, no, yeah. I don't want to patronize before I've even watched the thing that I want to watch. You know, well, so... Surely you're, you're an advertising pro. Surely occasionally you get pre-rolls saying, do you want to convert more customers? All the time. There you go. <laughs> and, and I will sadly, there are probably some really good people out there who can help me, but I will never ever do it because I'm because I'm so fed up with it. So yeah, you're you're totally right. And of course, you know, with ad blockers and everything, you know, the, the the ideal world is is halfway between what was and what is or something. I think in that a little bit of you know marketing to people hyper targeted, but just not too often, and just in places where you're not really going to piss them off, just working all that out. Um, or obviously you make it something that they're going to love and enjoy, but that's hard to, it's, that is so easy to say, but very hard to do on every brand because some brands, and maybe that's a cop-out, maybe the answer is you should be able to make something really interesting and informative and fun from any brand ever. But the, you know what I mean? It's not always possible. So yeah, so I think and you look at all the awards stuff and it's great looking at how people have been really smart with pre-roll um, and, you know, but either A, they got luck, they got a great product to be smart with, or B, they made something really cool and maybe it wasn't a great product, but they made something really cool. But 
they probably also still pissed the same number of people off who wanted to actually watch the thing that sits behind it. So it's a uh, complicated old world, I think, that. Yeah, absolutely. So let's move uh, out of that and let's get on to uh, OPC. So you were last year highlighted as one of the uh, the 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 startups to keep an eye on. And some of them were breakaways, some of them were sister shops. So you have other as a sister of mother. Um, but you have obviously new commercial arts, uh, which is basically like take the take the what would you take the motherboard out of Adam and Eve and put it into, you know, this uh, little thing and just watch it grow. Um, that's interesting to watch. And then you guys were spotlit as well. How did you come to the decision, you know, with who you were going to work with? When were those conversations happening? When did the partners come together and scheme and say, let's really go for this? Um, so I think as soon as I decided this was going to be a thing, I say decided, I mean, that sounds like it's so, you know, it's going to be. As soon as I like thought, oh God, no, but as soon as I wanted to do this and once set it up, I... Um, very quickly. So I suppose what's worth saying is that the, at the core of the OPC, there were four. We are now three and we, we will become four again. Um, but there were four of us and following a bit of a traditional discipline approach, we kind of wanted to make sure we had a creative partner, strategic partner, an operations partner, and a MD, I guess, a client services partner as was. And again, always you'll see I always awkwardly struggle with client services and account management because I think it's language that I sort of hate, but it... it, it a lot of, because it sounds like management speak. It just feels cold, and it also like saying client. I hate saying client because it just feels like uh, it just feels cold. It feels them and us. It feels traditional, and I'm trying to break out of all that. But the thing is, when you're obviously talking about the industry, it's a quick, it's a shortcut. People understand it. Uh, and if I said our, our partners, i.e., our clients, you'd be like, "Do you mean you're in partner internally? Do you mean somebody's invested in the business?" What do you and you know, and it's really hard to build clarity around. Yeah, that that that's a lexicon. So ultimately, customer it sounds short and transactional. Exactly. So client for the purpose of this conversation, account management slash client services and client makes sense. So, but yeah, the four people, the four core things. So I when when I knew this was going to be a thing, and to be honest, I didn't know exactly what it was going to be, other than as I said, that remote working integrated creative agency. So so it was definitely the business model and the fact that I could do it. You know, again, born out of lots of conversations with my clients at Engine, and so Red Bull, for example, lots of conversations about budgets, and they go, "That's quite a lot, isn't it?" And like, yeah, but you know, we are the best people who can do it. We are definitely can deliver at scale. We can definitely do these sort of things, and you know, and you can keep validating it for a while. But every month, you get a little bit more like, "There's other people who can probably say a lot of what we're saying," and it's getting quite hard to really validate those costs. And you know, mostly because we've got massive office in. Soho and it's, you know, the overheads are, and I know I'm at the start, we've got 10 people where you could have four. Exactly. So with all those things in mind, that's why, as you say, I set out to do it from a, this is the model we should go with. Mm -hmm. uh, then I, so then I, I very quickly, I went and had lunch and I always remember Botasaki. I just, you know, with Adam Tucker, who was um, my creative director at Leo's uh, and he, you know, I had a really good chat and he said, look, I'll support you in kind of this. I'd, I'd love to help find the right people always wanted to be more of a creative council, a bit of a sort of sitting in the background rather than being in the weeds. So that was great. So he was sort of there. Um, but the main person who I sort of jumped into speaking to very quickly, because I think the, how incredibly important having, you know, the thing that comes at the beginning, the strategy locked in um, was Lorna. So I spoke to Lorna. She was freelancing back at Leah Burnett actually at the time. Uh, and this is Lorna Burt. Um, uh, she was freelancing with Leah Burnett back there at the time. Um, but I knew that she was interested in, I don't know, we could have a conversation. So we went for lunch and I told her I wanted to do this thing and she brilliantly was like, I sort of get it and I sort of don't get it. What, what is it? What's the it? And, you know, that was set us on a journey of like, well, hold on, if anyone's going to help me define the it beyond the commercial model bit, uh, it is, is you because you are, and she's a smart, one of the best, probably the best strategist I've ever worked with and she's only sort of 31, 32, I think, which I always say because there's an assumption she might have 10 more years experience. You know, she's not, she's 10 years into this gig and, Amazing thinker. But she has ad, ad agency experience, but also went to this innovation agency that I mentioned, Bow and Arrow. So she'd had a, that perspective and she'd really been, you know, she was perfectly placed to help us define who we are and our direction of flight. Um, so Lorna, but Lorna was like, again, what is this? How much, am I jumping in? Am I not? Should we so she wanted to sort of test the waters a little bit. So just working a bit with me, helping me refine who we are and also working on a couple of live projects. And then she brought in a couple of other strategists to help us. 
And then Tim, Tim and I used to work at AMV, Tim Bath, who was head of um, creative services at AMV for a long time and then went on to publicists. Um, and we didn't know each other that well back at AMV. Uh, I think we worked on a Guinness project together, but yeah. Tim just got in touch. Actually, it was a bit of, it was LinkedIn genius. He just dropped me a bit of a note. He was sort of out of the out of publicist, wanted to sort of like reconnect with people. And I then I just gave him some shit for basically cold LinkedIn-ing me, such a thing. So it's like, have you literally just basically done a generic email message to me? And he's like, yeah, mate, really sorry. And <laughs> straight away from that little bit of, uh, that little connection, that little spark of banter, we, we, we chatted. And I mean, I've never known anyone be so enthusiastic about something so quickly. And I loved him for that. He's like, it just feels like the stars were aligned. It feels like this is the time I want to come on board. Mm. And, you know, we were paying each other, I was paying peanuts and I'd taken some money from when I left Engine, so I kind of like was comfortable. I didn't know about Lorna and Tim, but Lorna was sort of relatively comfortable. Tim had a little, you know, so we had a bit to kind of like get us going, but still I was taking the piss, but Tim was like, don't care, love it, sounds amazing. Yeah. So that's how the four of us came to be. And then really it was Lorna, Tim and myself driving it. And as we went into it and did more of it, Lorna realized there was a thing here. And as she helped bring shape to it, um, we, she then went about three days a week, then four days a week and is now full time. Uh, and so the three of us are full time. Adam has since sort of stepped back completely because he's got lots of other projects on and we need someone in the weeds, um, as much as being a, you know, leading this thing creatively. So we're looking for that person at the moment. Um, but the, but what's really interesting is the talking, I was in a round table with a few people the other day and talking to Justin Tindall, you know, from platform. Mm -hmm. um, and he was, um, talking about disposable creativity and you know justin who was my old ecd at leo's i thought you know one of the last people who would say that but actually disposable creativity is how we're getting by at the moment it's sort of even though we work in a creative industry we are doing very well creatively as well as strategically but without a creative leader but we absolutely know the value of having somebody who helps back to that point about shaping us at our core what we stand for creatively what our direction of flight is creatively because that is so so important yeah, yeah. And so this is a very exciting time to be talking. It's like we are um, kind of seconds into it and stuff's already happening. And, you know, hopefully we'll be looking back at this some point in the future and say, you know, saying, wow, remember when it was just that. And uh, so one thing that's, um, uh, well, a good way to get into it is let's talk about FT. You know, how did you get Financial Times? Describe the work you've done for them and, and, and you know, the relationship and, and, and how you yeah. got it over the line. Well, we've got, um, we've got like a 70-20-10 model, as so many people do in terms of our pipeline. 70% of our effort is, is scale-ups, you know, startups but, and scale-ups primarily, uh, and having some very interesting conversations there, all the way up to sort of venture capital uh, firms, speak, talking to them about how to invest in the right businesses uh, from a, or the businesses they want to invest in from a commercial level, mm -hmm. how, what shape we think they're in from a, uh, brand positioning and storytelling level and basically how quickly they're going to engage with their audience ultimately. So, you know, if you go right upstream, that's super exciting. So 70% of efforts in that world, 20% um, uh, of efforts in sort of probably the world we were in before, the big brands, which is what we're talking about now, and then 10% is wildcard. I mean, we just rebranded a, uh, a create an adventure golf business in Putney, uh, which kind of came out of through a contact of mine, but it, it could spy, it could turn into like global domination the, the guy who runs it is amazing and he's talking to he's talking to st andrews um and actually the scottish uh golf yeah. board about um uh trying to bring to like this totally new thing that's not golf and it's not adventure golf it's somewhere in between and he's also having conversations with people in japan and he's having those it's amazing like he's such an amazing entrepreneur but that is random as as hell but that might end up being a very lucrative and exciting opportunity for us and they're lovely. They're great fun. Anyway, the 20%, the bit in the middle is the FT. We're having conversations with the FT. We're talking to the BBC, uh, talking to the IOC, talking to sort of, you know, having those conversations um, because, you know, we'd be mad to not talk to people we worked with before. Yes. You know, and I'd love to get some Red Bull business. And, you know, now that all my, any non-competes have gone out the window, no, but, you know, I'd love to get it if I could. Um but FT was through the uh, head of marketing and within one part of it is an old BBC client of mine. Um, and so it kind of came through, came through that. It actually came through Conduit as well. So I'm working with a, a freelance uh, marketing guy who's another ex-client of mine at BBC and he actually opened that door for us. 
Um, and actually, I re- re- reimbursed him. He's like, yeah, you know, if you can open doors for us, we'll give you a percentage of the what sits the other side of the door to keep him interested. So it's quite an interesting sort of pipeline building model if you can get a few people who are doing that for you. Yeah. Um, and anyway, so yeah, last year we were invited to help them with a... So um, Brooklyn Brothers did the last piece of work, which I don't know if you've seen it, but it was a bit where everybody was stuck for words. Um, and they didn't quite know what to say next. And then they wanted to come up with a new piece of work that could talk to the US audience around the inauguration, the January inauguration. Yeah. Um, and so we created some plan. Now we're adapting to go to one in Australia. And it's it's a piece of AV. It's a it's the nearest thing to a TV ad that you know you can make. It's a it's a 30-second spot that talks about um how the Financial Times and how important the FT is for really informing people's decisions. And so we have a line which is people don't just read the Financial Times, they use it. So that was our positioning. That was our it's our tool and not a generic repository. Exactly that. And also we were trying to sell, you know, subscriptions to the FT on top of people's bread and butter subscriptions. So, you know, again in the US, if everyone's reading the Wall Street Journal, you're never going to take place of the Wall Street Journal. Um, you know, or if it's more, you know, New York Times, whatever it might be. But to, you know, spend an extra three quid a month on MDFT and knowing that the FT, you know, can inf- has informed so much already in the world yeah. and can help you make big decisions. It's like, buy this, it's a toolkit, it's a toolbox rather than just a publication. Oh. So that's what we have done and that's growing. Hopefully, as I say, we've just been asked to reversion it for Australia and hoping to do more of it. And I'm so excited about some conversations we're hoping to have with BBC and BBC Studios. Um, again, it's so early days, it may go nowhere. I'm comfortable talking about it because I think yeah. by saying having a conversation doesn't mean we've got any work, but you know, we're trying to have some of those conversations. And I think the last sort of thing I'll say on it is that the thing that we really like is if we have, if our, our positioning is taken from big brands, um, you know, who are really big and we've helped them make it big and stay big. And we're taking that experience and giving it to small, the new brands on the block, the scale ups, that's a really simple story to tell and really simple narrative. And lots of those scale ups are excited by, wow, we have all this, you guys, you've done all that yeah. stuff. You can do that for us. And it's not as expensive. And amazing. But then also in reverse, there's so many learnings from these guys and how they operate and the things that keep them awake at night. And basically they're all disruptor brands because they're coming new brands coming into a market, you know, and they have to either they're either creating a new market yeah. or they're disrupting within a market they're coming into. And all those learnings are incredibly valuable to take back to the more traditional brands and help them pivot and help them stay on the front foot and help them be disruptor brands again rather than disrupted brands. Yeah. So that is a very good narrative for the FT. That's a very good narrative for BBC. It's like, you know, we know this world. We can now give you that. And that just goes forever. It's really good because it's more, like, more that's the chess analogy. It's like playing chess against yourself. You know, you're seeing from both sides of the... It's not exactly a dichotomy, but it's really useful to see people who are coming up and see, and having to adapt to the new way in order to even break through. And then you can go back to the bigger brands and say, here's how they broke through. Here's what to look out for going forward. As a startup, I want to ask you about... Startup scale-up, I want to ask you about specifically. And again, caveated by the fact that I'm... Uh, a uh, young person, basically an idiot and a musician, so I don't know anything about most of the stuff that you do. Um, and there's a brand called Small. I don't know if you heard of them. S M O L Small. I haven't. They're not. Um, no. So I, I may have heard them literally just yesterday in a conversation, but I don't know whether I'm thinking about the same brand. So tell me more. Tell me more about. Them. They are mail order, uh, sustainable, recyclable uh, detergent. Brand. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I was talking to one of my friends yesterday who she got us on to um, about five D to C uh, sustainable products um, from our toilet roll to actually small. She was saying they're amazing. So I was talking about making some wash- dishwasher tablets. She said, don't buy them from anywhere, get from small. So it's exactly the same thing. So yeah. Only as of yesterday did I know anything about them. But I, tell me more. Well, I just keep talking to people in well, on this, really, or in Adland, saying someone, 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 make them famous, take them to the next level because they will be, I think they'll be useful for an agency because they have such brand loyalty as you found two people going, don't ever buy detergent again. So you know how Monzo Bank had this fierce brand loyalty? All the customers would sell them to their friends. Mm. I think Small are going to have the same thing, partially because of the sustainability thing, which is great, and all... The, and the market's gr- growing to love sustainability. Uh, but I, just, I love the branding as well. Uh, you know, it looks great and they keep coming out with new products. They've now done a, what do you call it? 
fabric softener and now they're doing sort of disposable, uh, disposable, reusable surface stuff. They say, you know, we give you the bottle, you keep the bottle and we just keep sending you the stuff that goes in the bottle. And, um, you know, uh, I think their pitch on their, you know, marketing email was like, who knew that detergents were some huge percentage water and you all have water. So we just give you the concentrate and you fill it with water instead of shipping it around the country. Anyway, I'm I'm gassing on, but you can see this is the kind of customer loyalty. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously it's worked, but do they need any help because they've won you over? No, but I, I, just I'm going to I'm in the market. They're on my target. They're they're back on their own. I list now. Then you list if you don't have a word with them. So here's something from. So we were uh, we probably still are viewed as a startup, but uh, we're still we're we're very small. And um, when I came into this, I was a you know waiter who had no experience of this industry, no experience in music really, and so I've had to learn everything from scratch in here, including how to win the business. And I'd be interested to know from a seasoned professional uh, like yourself. Uh, you know, what, what's the process? Do you just drop in on people's emails and go, hi, I hope you're well, I'm Simon, uh, I do advertising, do you need advertising? Uh, look forward to hearing from you. What's your strategy? Damn, that's, that's really? great. That's it. Um, no, it's so funny, I was on a, on, a, on a networking thing last night, actually through our, through our remote accountant. Yeah. So, um, and actually it was really interesting talking to a load of founders um, about exactly this. And I think, I don't know, the, the C part, the collective part of, of OPC is probably the bit that is the door opening bit for us. Um, because ultimately it means we work with a whole raft of people who have a lot of business. They've already, they're already doing some stuff with some people. And actually, but what they can't, they, they can only do 40% of what, 30% of what the client wants is other stuff the client wants. And, and, you know, and my thing is connecting with the right people who've already got doors open and then you can they invite you through that door as well. Right. So they are really smart, probably like more normally these people who are more the coal face, the doers. So sort of from creative, from product the production end of things. But you know, often they don't have that, you know, there's no the briefs that they're getting aren't very good. There's no strategy, no real thinking's gone into it. So we say, like, well, we will, you know, let's get Lego analogy going. You know, we'll kind of like bolt ourselves onto you. Yeah. Because you've already got the business, but you bring us in and we both get to make some money. And actually, that simple philosophy, that simple approach, has essentially been a massive driver for us. Uh, and a lot of that's been working with contacts and with people we know, and, and understanding where they're at now, and looking at kind of what they've. A lot of them have gone solo. Yeah. Talking to them about, you know, yeah, if you make you do that, it's like, well, but, you know, if we if we go together, we become the Power Ranger like big robot thing. Yeah. Um, so there's that, but then there's also just partnerships. So I'm the biggest believer in like getting smart partnerships up running, trying to work out, again, back to doors. You open one door to a platform or partner who then have 100 doors behind that who, that they can open for you. Then obviously that is the smartest pipeline filler in the world. So we are a partner of Crowdcube, um, the, the um, crowdfunding platform. And that was a little bit of hard graft, um, to be honest, of just a lot of knocking on the door from, from me primarily. I mean, it helps that I'm an obsessive crowd cube funder. Yeah. Fund about 20 businesses on there, only small bits and bobs, but everyone's Monzo. I went to Monzo early, so I've done pretty well out of Monzo. Yeah, yeah. Um, but ultimately, you know, and I like all this stuff. I'm really interested in it. But anyway, we spoke to them. We, we're now part of the Funded Club. So we have at the bottom of our website and bottom of our email, Funded Club. Uh, and that basically means any business that funds through Crowdcube is introduced to a suite of potential partners from lawyers to IT to and integrated creative agencies. So we are getting business that way. So anytime anyone in the crowd crowdcube funded club wants some help from marketing side of things, we get introduced them through a conduit who's the guy who runs it. Uh, but also we're doing uh, masterclasses. Yes. So we're going to do some training. Uh, our first one's coming up in two weeks' time. Um, and we will be exposed to 10 or 15 new brands and we'll talk to them about a topic that they've chosen that's in the marketing world and hopefully they'll go, wow, you're already smart. I want to work with you. And suddenly we get a load of new clients and then it just snowballs from there. So to answer your question, I think it's being smart about building a team that's already can already take, bring you into conversations that are already happening. So you're borrowing from them, but you're also making them look better than they could look on their own. So everybody wins and having really smart partnerships uh, in place and, and then obviously there's just a bit of, yeah, of course, a lot of talking to your old clients and just saying, hey, you know, we worked together. We enjoyed it. I'm doing my own thing. It's everything I did before, but in a nicer version of it, do you want to chat? And that has also worked. 
I know exactly what you mean, by the way, on the thing of bolting yourself on in order to improve someone else's offering. Let me give you an example of what happened recently. So obviously our domain music, I think in advertising, much discussed, least understood discipline. So, and uh, what it usually boils down to is, uh, what track do I want that already exists and how can I buy it and how can we get the price down? And so we had, uh, there was a track by Van Gelis that we were asked for the other day. They said, you know, they're asking for six figures, lots. Um, can you remake it for five figures? Um, and so it was, and I think in, let me see, got it, the request at 10 p.m. on a Thursday. It was done by 4 p.m. the following day. So we're looking at about a 16, 17-hour turnaround time for what was basically an identical track with a new vocalist, a female vocalist. And um, whilst uh, I'm sort of hesitant to say on the record, we didn't win the business. What it enabled our you know, client to do was go back to the label and go, it's fine, we don't need it anymore. We've got this and it's basically the same. And they went, oh, and the price crumbled. So it's that kind of thing you're talking about, isn't it? Where even if you aren't straight there at the point of transaction immediately, you bolt on and you make someone's offering that much better. Yeah, I, yeah, I think so. I mean, that sounds like you, yeah, I suppose the sounds like they used what you did to their own, for their own benefit and not so much yours. But, um, but you know, we're still David, not Goliath at the moment. So Yeah, no, but I do, I, yeah, I think, you know, and it's working out, it's working out what the, easiest or the best looking thing is when you combine with somebody so you know for, from a client perspective and, and the easiest thing for them to buy into so you know again full service offering is great lots of clients get excited by that but actually um you know they don't sometimes they don't really know what that means because they actually also want an agency that's really niche and that's a bit of a tug of war that we've got between doing everything but being really specific about what we do so our focus actually is probably more on who we do it for rather than what we do right so that's how we shifted yeah. That's another reason why I think, you know, your offering is going to be very attractive. I spoke, the last person I did for this podcast, I spoke to was Andy Nairn at Lucky Generals. And he said the way they won the Amazon account was Amazon said, look, we don't want another big business. You know, we want to work with someone small and who thinks uh, it has a great strategy, you know? Yeah. Well, and that, hallelujah, right? That's that's what we're all about. And, and, and like I said at the beginning about the, this, our model, the remote working model was validated by every client in the world because it's the only way they could do things. But also the small, you know, that that was a functional side of it that was validated, but the actual emotional side of it, let's call it, you know, lots of, I think brands like the like to feel a bit more loved. They like a bit of attention. They're happy to do things, try things a bit different as well, more than ever, I think. Also, you know, we talk a lot about products, selling products rather than selling time and energy, even though a lot of the time, you know, you have to map out a product based on time with a certain person at a certain rate. So rate cards still have a very important role to play. But, you know, clients kind of want um, a product and they, I think the, you know, the importance of of offering a, a toe dipping product, as we sort of call it, you know, the, 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 so try, come try us, basically come and try us. And big brands can come and try us. And they go, oh my God, do you know what you do? Oh my God, you literally can do that. These guys that we're paying shitloads of money to do, you can do all that. But how you get them in with reassure them on your creds, which we can totally do. We've got a deck which says we've done all this stuff, aren't we? You know, we're well placed. But just come and try us out. And I do think there's more appetite for it. I think there's more appetite for trying us out, people out. And you know, I love the fact that yeah, that that the world is changing sadly a lot of it because of something horrible. But you know, we'll come out the other side in a different shaped world uh we're inside and outside of this industry but we're inside of this industry i think it's i feel really positive about where it's going and, and opportunities for loads of small agencies to, to do really well to thrive yeah and uh, you know like you're right to say that uh um it's a it's a it's a crisis that has caused a lot of this uh potential to be manifested but we also have to remember that you know comfort is not what drives us forwards um and so uh, I've got one sort of last big question for you, and that is why I was kind of glancing at the time because I sense that we sort of consumed an hour there. Um, and potentially controversial to talk about within the industry, but let's see where we get. I wanted maybe your take on why uh, big shops in the last year, uh, in particular AMV, uh, are losing big accounts. So the reason I'll, uh, AMV comes front of mind is because this morning's headline was, you know, Asda uh, create, uh, put in, uh, taking their account for review uh, Quaker went to Uncommon. Uh, Walkers, I think, has gone to Elvis Communications. Yeah. I believe there's a fourth one. What, what's going on there? What's happening? 
Oh, so we talk about this a bit because I say Tim and I are ex AMB. We're also working with recently with um, a racing equator called Nigel Roberts, who's ex AMB. And uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know. And if, if Tim were on this, Tim would probably have a much clearer perspective on it. But I think, I think, like a lot of, you know, like BBH was infallible for a while and then it's being infallible. Um, AMB definitely has been infallible for a while and now it's very much stopping being infallible. I think, I think it's a combination of, I don't know, the right people and the right ideas sitting at the heart of the work. Um, so there's a chemistry, might be chemistry issues, there might be lack of, I mean, again, the amazing work that came out on the, the body form work, I think is, shows that the creative ability is still massive, but admittedly there may well be also only a very small concentrated version of that. But without getting into any detail about people, I think there potentially is, yeah, the people is a factor, but also the shift to doing things differently and trying out new stuff probably means the big, a lot of the big agencies are suffering from that. I mean, obviously Adam and Eve are, are, are a big brand, a big agency, but they are doing incredibly well. But they seem to still have this sense of being really, really dynamic, even though they are big and cumbersome and now part of a network. Yeah. You know, but they kept that dynamic edge. And I think AMV's lost that, that air of dynamism. And I think that's what's really hurting them. And so it's probably perception, but reality to a degree, but a lot of perception that's just sort of crippling them. And also, sadly, when the shit, you know, when things start getting messy, um, people talk and it spreads. And so lots of people start jumping ship. And I, I mean, I hand on absolute heart hope to hell that it turns around because. You know, I loved working there. We we have a massive soft spot for AMV. Um, you know, if I could get one percent as successful as any those guys, I would be incredibly proud. So for all the reasons why, I don't, certainly don't take any joy from it. Um, and I do hope that things will out. And I'm sure they will. And I'm totally sure they will. I think it's just sadly everybody has. You know, it, you know, it's like it's like things start going wrong. It all everyone it all just sort of happens at the same time. It comes a kind of spiral, of, isn't there? Yeah. Well, there is. But then it gets turned around. You know, like grey was turned around, BBH came back up. A lot, you know, I don't know, lots of the agencies that were once upon a time uh, written off have, have come back and come back stronger. And actually, you know, shrinking and being more agile and being more relevant might be where they get to. Um, and that might make them a much more interesting shape than, than where they are now. So actually, you know, out of, out of this painful time, hopefully we'll become real silver lining that they'll change shape and become more on point and more exciting to other brands. Yeah. You know, you are right because I think I sense the 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 center of your the centerpiece of your response there was the same as, you know, the poem Ozymandias. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like no matter how big an empire is, it will one day be in in ruins. But mm-hmm. we're not there with the regards to this because it's not just AMV there, which is a good example. You know, Adam and Eve lost a big account to new commercial arts. Uh, Vodafone went from Ogilvy. Philips have put Ogilvy up for review. So it's obviously there's there's a trend. There's things you know there's things going on at the moment. Uh, DFS have put Crow up for review. Who that they've been with them for ten years. So um, it's probably part of a, a broader trend. But certainly what I'm noticing is that the the, the small, nimble, as we all keep saying, nimble, agile. Uh, startups like you guys and like the others we mentioned are appear uh, poised to take advantage of the opportunity. Yeah, and we'd be we'd be daft not to. So, for, as you say, for all the lovely things I just said about AMB, of course, we'd be daft not to take some advantage of uh, the appetite from those brands to work in a different way and with different people. But you know, again, it's all about your knowledge and your discipline. We've got all that knowledge. We've got all that experience. We so we can do everything. Mm-hmm they do but in a very different feel to it um and that's that's ultimately what i think will make us yeah make us successful and exciting and appealing but but then yeah again we'll go through these cycles of change and then it's like what in five years time what will it look like in 10 years time what will it look like and who knows but if you think about that too hard you get sucked into a rabbit hole and you probably get stressed about things that may never happen yeah. so you've got to roll with it a little bit and you forget what's you know i hate to sound like a trivial cliche but you forget what's really important don't you because uh, what's important is, is there food on the table? You know, is the family doing okay? Uh, and and things like that. And, you know, in uh, 1990 or so, uh, Saatchi and Saatchi was the biggest monolith of advertising that had ever existed. And now it's uh, one of many and is owned by another network. So, you know, everything changes, everything comes and goes. And, uh, you know, like you say, we, uh, we, we've we come through 
probably the most significant crisis of our lifetimes. Hopefully, it will be the most significant of the rest of our lifetimes. So, um, I suppose we'll uh, we'll we'll wrap it up there. I didn't ask you anything about music, so hopefully, um, you know, vaccines pending and permitting, we're planning to take this down to London at some point. Hopefully, before the end of the year, just book out a studio and do some more chats for a few days. So, hopefully, we can do this in person next time. Yeah, that'd be great. Anything in person would be good. I, you need a little bit of like a decompression time because I'm sure if I actually met you in person, it would be something to make yesterday. It's like, do people do eye contact anymore? It's like, what, you're not used to it. How do you, what do you, how do you, how, how do you, how do you start? And I think, so I think we're going to experience the Zoom effect as well, where, so, you know, when I first, this sounds, this is so not cool for a music person to say, and I apologize to the people judging me. And I also apologize to Chris Martin because I once went to see Coldplay. I was at the front of the stadium in 2012. It was a great gig. What happens when famous people come out in real life is you kind of double take because something about your nervous system responds like they're actually fictional and you didn't expect them to be real. You only saw them on TV and on YouTube. I think we're going to meet loads of people in person after this who we've only seen on Zoom and it surprises you how tall they are or something like yeah. that, you know? Yeah, definitely. That EQ, that moment where you read the person for the first time is like, uh, yeah, and there'll be a lot of people that there's these explosions going off in their brains of like, what? Yeah. Um, I'm actually seven foot. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm very hairy, but... Uh, yeah. But, but uh, yeah, yeah, Zoom cancels it all out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a filter this, so just do it for yeah. fun. Brilliant stuff. Um, okay, well, it sounds like you have some you know, growth to get on with <laughs> some some business to win. So I can't take any more of your time, but I'm super grateful for you giving me a, as much as you have done. So uh, yeah, I, um, I, I, I suppose it's thanks and see you next time. Thank you, mate. Yeah, see you next time.